Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And this week we're going to discuss episode 20 of season four of Supergirl, hitting the home stretch here for season four. And I thought it would be fitting for us to begin this discussion with Lockwood and his son George, because they tie nicely into the theme of the episode. And they also connect nicely with what happened with James's character in the previous episode. Mm. The theme of this episode is basically being there for people, like where you place priorities and like whose side you're on, sort of that general concept. And this episode starts with George Lockwood at his mother's funeral, giving a speech about her. He says, you were always there for me, and I know you always will be. And then <laughs> his father leaves <laughs> immediately. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because, like, is he overwhelmed with emotion? And the answer is yes, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the anger emotion specifically. And so Lockwood leaves George alone at his mother's funeral, and then later on he sort of abandons George again when George seeks him out at the DEO. And this is interesting in terms of James's flashback from the previous episode at his father's funeral and how he wasn't able to be there because of the bullies who trapped him in the coffin, which is a much more legitimate reason he was like physically restrained from being there. And then Lockwood just makes this decision when George obviously needs him to be there. Well, and it's also an interesting juxtaposition in the sense that we saw a younger James who was probably about the same age as George Lockwood, if not maybe Mm. a little younger, trying to take that moment to say goodbye to a very loved parent and not getting it, whereas at least George Mm. here was able to air his feelings and say goodbye to his mother in a healthy way. (laughs) It's also fitting in terms of James's mother and Kelly and how Kelly said that her mom was like overcome with emotion and couldn't really be present with her and thinking about her. Which also then makes you wonder what things were like at Jeremiah's funeral. (laughs) If you want to be really sad, yes. (laughs) Look, we are sad here on this show and we know the Danvers family reunion is coming. (laughs) So (laughs) knowing Eliza, I would assume she kept it together better than you would expect. Well, knowing how much Alex is like Eliza, yes. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about that later. (laughs) We will. And so James's mother is overcome with emotion. And like you said, so it was Lockwood, but this like anger emotion. And it's funny because he gives this like justification. He says, I did all of this to keep you and your mother safe. George is like, and it worked so well. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) That is interesting because this whole thing came forth with Lockwood because of the death of his father and how he responded to that and his house burning down and sort of these threats to his family. Yeah, so... We do see in this episode that he hasn't changed as a person since we were introduced to him in the flashbacks in episode three of the season. He's still using grief as an excuse to escalate anger and hatred and this feeling of entitlement, Mm -hmm. which interestingly is a very like privileged white dude way of reacting to difficult emotion. And especially if you compare it to women, they tend to be more likely to internalize things like that. But Yet again, like we saw in that flashback episode, and then here, and interestingly, in both cases, a Bravic alien was involved. We see Lockwood using his emotion as a justification for persecuting people in a really terrible way and justifying it in a way that is very fitting with right-wing or extreme conservative ideology. Mm-hmm. 
It's interesting because, you know, there's this like right wing value that people will profess of like family and, you know, like family structure and protecting your family. But then we see that it can become quite hypocritical, specifically with Lockwood. He is abandoning his family for this vendetta and his hatred. And then there's just the concept of like, if you support family and you want children to be safe, then that should extend to other families. You would think. <laughs> yes. And in this episode, we see Lockwood find the Bravik who killed his wife at this like library that aliens are using as a shelter. And he tells the DEO agents to round them up for enhanced interrogation. And we cut to like kids sitting on the bed like. Yeah. So for those who don't know what that means, enhanced interrogation is a fancy way of saying legally approved torture. So there are things that on the surface don't seem necessarily terrible, but actually do a lot of physical and or psychological damage over mm -hmm. an extended period of time. Kind of like very young children being separated from their parents at the border, sort of tying into that idea of right wing values and protecting your family. But then the exception is other families. But for instance, that situation at the border, people did recognize that as morally reprehensible. So yeah, but also one other thing in that scene, and this could have just been somebody writing in a hurry and maybe not realizing it. Rendition is the wrong word for what Lockwood actually wants done with the aliens who are being taken away. Rendition specifically means that, like, your government, so let's say the United States, arrests somebody in a foreign country and then ships them off to a third country that has less strict regulations on torture, mm. specifically so you can treat them inhumanely. So arresting people to take them into custody in your own country doesn't fall under the use of that word. Mm. But so this scene is sort of a easily recognizable moral wrong thing to do with Lockwood. And he's doing it because he wants to lash out because his wife was killed. And he's doing this while his son George is grieving. And it was interesting to see George's reaction to his father's actions. Because we were wondering in the last episode whether or not he would like regress and mm. take a step back because he had just come to the realization that aliens are people. But then his mother was killed. So we were like, well, okay, what's going to happen? Is he going to take a step back or is he going to surprise us. And he did. Hope. <laughs> and he did. Yes. <laughs> in true Supergirl the show fashion. Yeah, George clearly is in this emotionally vulnerable moment and he could have very easily turned and blamed it on the alien who was responsible. And I think if his dad had been there for him emotionally and spun mm -hmm. it that way, that might have happened. Yeah. But instead, he perceives his father as essentially abandoning him in much the same way you kind of saw Alex have that moment of realization in season two that Jeremiah was not who she thought he was. Mm -hmm. And George in this episode tries to reach out and connect emotionally to his dad only to recognize because as we said last week, he is a thinker in the same way that Lockwood has always claimed to be. Mm -hmm. And George recognizes that this was never about protecting anything or anyone. This was about male entitlement, essentially. <laughs> and he ends up basically saying that he is done with his father and his extremist ideology, which like, good for him. Where is he going to go now? <laughs> we just don't know. Yeah. So we'll see. But it definitely tied back nicely to the nature-nurture theme that was explicitly raised again in this episode. Mm -hmm. And George's revelation about his father ties in nicely like with the root message of this character of Lockwood. And Sam Whitmer, who plays Ben Lockwood, said in an interview with Electric Playground, 
he's got some reasons for having this much hate and venom, but everyone can do the mental gymnastics to think that they have reason to hurt someone else. So this is a nice sort of rounding out of that concept, which is interesting in relation to Lockwood's wife dying, being killed by the writers for the purposes of plot, because, you know, there's this trope of fridging we've talked about before Mm. in relation to Manchester. And it's something to keep an eye on and to talk about because tropes which are harmful in certain contexts can be useful. And I don't think it's like a hardline rule with anything that you should just never touch the story structure of a certain trope. Mm. And in the context here, we see Lockwood's wife die. And typically with the fridging trope, the wife dies and then the person is able to use it as an excuse, believably, for the audience to behave the way that the writer wants them to behave to like, you know, go crazy or become suddenly morally questionable. And so the audience is supposed to be like, oh, that's understandable. I see why that happened. Where else could they go? (laughs) But like we saw with Manchester and how Jean confronted him and said that he's using that as an excuse because he wants to do these things. Mm, Yeah. And how Lockwood could easily make different choices, better choices that are more helpful for him in his life. We see the trope of fridging sort of commented on and sort of subverted. But then there's also a greater context within the season where, as you have pointed out, that three out of four of the deaths of named characters in the season have been women. Yeah, and all three of the women who have died, that would be Fiona, Nia's mother, and now Lydia Lockwood, have been killed off to advance plot. Which uh, in and of itself, like the concept of killing someone off to advance plot doesn't... Isn't always bad necessarily, yeah. but... <laughs> it's just that like three out of four... It's been a little over-relied upon. Yeah. And also, most of these were characters that were not necessarily given any particular depth. Nia's mom in particular, yeah. we were only introduced to for maybe 15 minutes and learned very little about her other than what served Nia's superhero origin story. And then she died and that was it. Mm. So that has kind of been in the back of my mind as an issue with the season, especially then because some of the unnamed characters that have died have also been either women or minority men, Mm. like all of the people who were killed by the (laughs) moray. It's another situation where it's like, (laughs) your colorblind casting initiative is great, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So it's just, I don't know that with certain things that I would do anything differently, maybe with Nia's storyline and her mom and like making it so that her mother's character was maybe present beforehand and then that her own storyline was served by her death and like rounded out for her as a person. That's one thing to keep an eye on. Yeah. With the other two, they definitely are trying to subvert the trope somewhat by saying, you know, the fact that someone you loved died isn't an excuse for you being terrible. And the fact that the person who has said this in both instances was Jean mm. makes it a lot harder to say, oh, but it's a valid excuse. Like, no, it's being told to you by another male character who has lived through a lot of death <laughs> of people he loves and has never become this horrible, destructive mm. force. So, yeah. So it's something to keep an eye on and think about. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Manchester Black and his storyline that he had earlier this season. Lockwood's storyline of choosing to go after the person who killed his wife rather than be there at his wife's funeral reminds me of this Superman comic story from the Superman ending battle storyline with Manchester Black who pretended to kill Lois Mm. and basically tried to goad Superman into killing him for it. But Superman Clark prioritized giving Lois a proper burial. And it's interesting because we've had this storyline with Manchester Black referenced in the 
season before. So then that's interesting in terms of this theme that we've been discussing of priorities and being there for people when you should be there for them and pushing other things to the side that are less important. And then going back to Lockwood and his current storyline in this episode, we like to point out the language that he uses in this podcast because it is often interesting Mm. and he likes to twist it. Yes. (laughs) As we have said many times. He sure does. (laughs) We saw with my favorite DEO background character, Lockwood asked her what they do at the DEO and she starts, we monitor extra normal and he interrupts her and says, no aliens, right? That's what you were going to say. You were going to say alien as opposed to extra normal. So ruling out any other sorts of outside of the norm beings that there may be, like metahumans. I also found that question slightly funny because that used to be part of the opening monologue in the credits. (laughs) And we haven't heard anything actually in the past several episodes. Hmm. Yeah. And then the other aspect of it, of course, is the monitoring. He says, in these days, we don't just monitor aliens, we hunt them down. So he asks her a question. And then when he doesn't get the answer that he wants, he interrupts her and puts words in her mouth. Yes, very similarly to what he did in his later lectures when he was still a professor. Yeah. Speaking of which, I also appreciated the very specific detail of him needing to use whom correctly (laughs) in a sentence where it was not especially necessary just to be pretentious. <laughs> yeah. So that was fun. I appreciate that as well. I like that the white dude villain characters are pretentious. <laughs> exactly. Pretentious intellectuals. <laughs> they think they're smart and that that justifies them doing bad things. Mm. Also, in his rant about wanting to catch Nia, there were some very deliberate word choices in the way he was like, an illegal alien <laughs> has usurped your country and wants to stage an uprising against the government. Like, she literally just talked about herself as a person. <laughs> yeah. I don't quite see that as an attack on the government, but, you know, he's trying. <laughs> you could tell that the DEO agent, who, if anybody has noticed if she's been named, <laughs> let me know. Because <laughs> she was in the other episode. She's been in a few other episodes as one who is one of Alex's allies. Yes. She was willing to erase her memory of who Supergirl is. But you can tell that she is, like, really confused at him <laughs> wanting to go after her, but like less so confused about obviously going after the alien that killed his wife. (laughs) Well, and it was also kind of funny because we saw a little bit more of the background DEO agents there too, and they were all kind of like looking at each other and (laughs) side-eyeing like, do we really have to listen to this crazy man? Mm. And then the other thing that Lockwood says specifically in his rant about Nia is find out who she is. Coming right back around to where we started the season with this issue of identity and safety. Yeah. I bet you we're going to learn more about that next week. (laughs) Yes. But the DO agents that you mentioned, (laughs) looking at each other confused and alarmed, in the background of that scene, tease us up nicely for later on when Brainy gets through to the DO agents and convinces them to not go after James and Dreamer. (laughs) It sure does. We had a couple of moments in this episode where Brainy is very much acting as the metaphorical angel on Lockwood's shoulder Hmm. while different people keep coming in and trying to tempt him to do bad things. So for example, he's trying to appeal to Lockwood's concern about his family and he's like, well, your son needs you right now. And then the other DEO agent comes in right that second and is like, we found the person who killed your wife with a picture of her right in his face. Yeah. And he decides he'd rather do that. So, (laughs) all right then. The other thing that was nice in this episode is that what Brainy said about government allegiance is true. Yay. 
(laughs) (laughs) So the oath you take as either a civil servant or a member of the military is actually one to protect and uphold the Constitution of the United States. So you are not loyal to a specific leader or a political party. You are loyal to the ideals upon which the country was founded. Hmm. And so this is why having people who are career public servants and who have high integrity is so important in moments of crisis because that is your line of defense. Hmm. And that is exactly what happened here. And we have seen some evidence that that's one of the things like holding our heads above water (laughs) in real life. So thank you for emphasizing that that was important, Cho. Yes. And he did it in a very Supergirl-esque way. Brainy's speech just reminded me of in season one when Supergirl convinced General Lane's soldiers to let them take Astra away, who was being imprisoned in order to make an exchange for Jean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> at the time, Hank Henshaw, by like appealing to their sense of integrity. Mm-hmm. And then also when you talked about Brainy appealing to Lockwood and how his son needs him, that was also a very sort of Supergirl-esque skill that he displayed, which is interesting for Brainy because his arc has had a lot to do with his social skills and understanding people and connecting to them. So him having like Supergirl level emotional connections and ability to convince people is quite impressive. It was. It was nicely done. Mm -hmm. And then also kind of as I already said, Jean makes the second appeal to Lockwood and I love that he did it in the fashion of arriving to make a dad rescue (laughs) to save James and Nia and Brainy from the jaws of death. Mm. And then proceeds to take a very Kara-like approach, which to me says that he did put in some time figuring out who he wants to be as the Martian Manhunter because it's kind of in between this idea of not violent and fighting because he starts out by trying to appeal to whatever remains of Lockwood's empathy and his connections to his own family. Mm -hmm. And when that doesn't work, that's when he starts (laughs) swinging. But he actually doesn't. Initially, he just kind of phases out of his grasp Mm. and only really does anything that might harm him when it's clear that nothing else is working and James is like, he's fireproof now, it's fine to throw him at the oil tanker. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, he says, I am the Martian Manhunter, I know you, which is just an interesting sort of recontextualization of what the Martian Manhunter represents to him. Because before we've seen him say, I'm the Martian Manhunter, and it be about him being angry. Yes. And like violent. And now we're seeing it's like, Manhunter, I understand you in a way somebody might (laughs) if they were uh, scoping someone out. So that's just interesting. So going back to this concept of being there for people. (laughs) Kelly was there for Alex in this episode, which was nice. And we got a lot of their interaction and got to see what their dynamic looks like more. And they are funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, their kind of back and forth with each other was entertaining. It wasn't snarky. It was just fun. Yeah, which is always nice. They opened with a joke with Alex saying that's one upside to martial law. Maybe you feel like you're at home, which amused Kelly. It did. And actually, it was a pretty good way to attempt to make the best of a really awful situation because there's like military trucks and stuff in the background while they're out at the park just on a jog. It was kind of like a realistic way of seeing someone process that, actually. (laughs) It was. It made sense, too, knowing that they both identify 
identify with these elements of military life mm. in different ways. So it made sense to be like a point of commonality since they both acknowledge in this episode, like they don't know each other extremely well, but they kind of are feeling each other out. So like it was good. Mm-hmm. They relate to each other. <laughs> they do relate. <laughs> like about aging. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. That, that part was really funny. I was like, wow, I definitely <laughs> related to that point. Um, <sighs> it's also fitting because Alex would have just recently turned 30 in this season. So I'm not surprised that she's having conversations like this. Given the way Alex tends to think about everything, I am not surprised either. <laughs> <laughs> But they were quite amusing in various scenes in this episode, which was also nice because, I mean, we can kind of tell where this is going (laughs) one day. But that was nice in terms of what Kelly said about her fiancé who died and who said that she had every faith that she would find another person who would make her smile. Mm -hmm. So that was a nice tie-in to see in this same episode. There are like multiple deliberate shots of her looking amused. Yes. (laughs) So if that didn't clue you in. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of things that she found amusing, (laughs) Alex's comment about the baby flinging itself into an outlet. That one was really funny on two levels. Like, number one, that's extremely a thing that people who are already naturally anxious do Hmm. when they're thinking about their future children. I have family members who have done the exact same thing to the point that we had to take away all the baby books. (laughs) But the other reason it was funny was because just the mental image of like a small child flinging itself at an outlet was like, Alex, for not remembering that Kara has superpowers, you sure sound worried about things that sound like superpowers. (laughs) Well, Alex is like, oh my god, Kara used to break all these lamps and she doesn't remember that it was not a normal thing for (laughs) for a human to do. The things Alex is worried about seem irrational, but like they might be totally rational. (laughs) And even she doesn't know it. It's gotta be calming. (laughs) It's not. (laughs) But we'll talk about that in a second. In like a second. But Kelly's like, do you hear yourself? (laughs) Which was wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, it was great because she's calling attention to the fact that Alex is being somewhat irrational, is kind of just stuck in this loop of increasing paranoia Mm. without actually criticizing her or making it a big thing. She's just like, do you understand that this is silly? (laughs) Yeah. And it gave her a reason to kind of laugh about it and be like, yes, okay. Maybe (laughs) it is a little bit ridiculous. Mm Mm-hmm. So we saw Alex be classic Alex, and I have here in our notes that the A in Alex stands for anxiety. (laughs) Which it sure does. (laughs) I really appreciated this episode for what it reinforced for Alex on a character level, because this ties into kind of the nature-nurture theme of the season, and it's something that I think people have missed, generally speaking, in terms of understanding Alex, but she is an innately anxious person. (laughs) It is a fundamental part of her as a character. Like we've mentioned this a couple times throughout the podcast this season, and I've, I think, written about it as well. But the show has removed the one big thing that Alex was constantly stressed about, which was Kara getting hurt Hmm. as Supergirl and people finding out that Kara is Supergirl. And it has changed the anxious nature of her personality zero (laughs) percent. She's just found new things to worry about. Her anxiety will find a way. It's resilient. (laughs) It is as tough and resilient as Alex herself. (laughs) Which is fascinating because Eliza is such a calming presence. Yeah. (laughs) That probably adds to her anxiety. Why can't it be as calm as Eliza? (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, poor Alex. (laughs) 
<laughs> but like specific example, she's having this inner debate about whether or not it's the right moment in her life to adopt a baby, which is like a normal thing to be stressing about. Yeah. And then all of the sudden it escalates into, I have to catch Lex Luthor, which like that's not even the DEO's job. And also yeah. martial law is here in the world. It's awful. Why would I want to raise a baby? And it's like, oh, whoa, <laughs> calm yeah. down. Like, Although that was interesting in terms of it being like a real question that people have of like, oh, it definitely is. How yeah. do you live a normal life and like proceed with normal milestones while there are crises happening all the time and everything feels terrible politically and socially and like try to navigate that and you still have to proceed <laughs> and continue to live. Which is also a concept that we brought up earlier in the season when we talked about Lena and James trying to carry on their romantic relationship in a sort of normal way in the context of all this other crazy political stuff that was happening. Mm. And then one of the other things that Alex is anxious about on her long list of things is her apartment not being prepared for a child, which is fair, <laughs> probably. Which is fair, and while humorous, was also a sign that someone didn't think through this particular plot point because if Alex has already been approved for adoption, she would have had to take care of all those things already. Yeah. And more to the point, the way that Alex's life is set up right now, she would not pass a home visit from a social worker because number one, she lives in a studio apartment and you have to have a separate living space for a child. So right away, that's no good. And number two, when you have to prepare for the home visit, you have to be prepared to have a child of any age, regardless of what age you are asking for. So that includes having things baby-proofed and having evidence that your home is ready to receive a child at any time. Mm. And none of that has been in place. And that's very frustrating knowing that this is a storyline that has been in the back of everybody's minds for over a year. Yeah. Because that seems like basic facts that someone should have considered before they wrote those scenes. And it's a little bit unfortunate that they didn't, considering that this show does a really good job of representing the emotional content when it comes to adoption and adoptive families. So hopefully that is a thing that will get addressed when they're genuinely ready to to do this storyline because it makes no sense to do it now anyway, just from a storytelling standpoint, because that's something you do in like the final season when you know the show is going to end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Alex says that she submitted the form like a year ago when we just saw like a handful of episodes ago that she finally finished the application. So that's a little wonky. And then in terms of like the emotional content that you referenced and how they're usually pretty good at that, there's sort of a missed opportunity here, as you've pointed out to me, recording mm. a queer point of view with this scenario. Yeah, that part is also a bit disappointing in that that is a place to absolutely get additional intersectionality into the show, much the way they have done with Nia. Mm -hmm. And it just isn't there. Alex's experience as someone who's attempting to go through the adoption process as both a single parent and a lesbian is unique and it's going to run into multiple kinds of biases and that hasn't seemed to cross anybody's mind in how they're writing the story. It feels is just like a very generic adoption story. Mm. So I really hope somebody does a little bit more research into specifically the experiences of queer parents who have
have adopted or fostered mm. before really doubling down on pursuing the story because right now it just doesn't feel relatable on that level. Yeah. This felt like a one-off sort of situation. Yeah. And in that sense, I hope that going forward, whenever they do actually tackle it and make it happen for real, that they take the opportunity to maybe fix some of this in terms of accuracy and like a queer point of view. They could do it by having a new character social worker come in who is an issue. So there are ways that they can tackle the more interesting angles of adoption that we could see. So hopefully they'll capitalize on that later. Indeed. There is room to fix it, actually, because if Alex does get married or move in the future, she would have to redo yeah. all of that paperwork and the visits with the social worker and the interviews and stuff. So there is room to redo it and do it the right way. The social worker could be like, who did this before? <laughs> this shouldn't have worked <laughs> out for you. <laughs> the mother didn't actually change her mind. The social worker just realized that she messed up on the paperwork. <laughs> it's funny because I watched with my sister and she thought as it was happening, we all knew on some level that it wasn't going to work out for Alex, but she thought that it would be a like setup from like Lex or Lockwood or somebody to distract Alex from the crisis that's happening for some nefarious reason. Which... I could see as being a possibility given some of the other stuff that played out in this episode hmm. that we'll talk about when we get to Kara. Yes. But going back to Alex and her anxiety, <laughs> <laughs> one of the other things that she got stressed about was how the mother didn't want to see Alex until after she had the baby. And Kelly's like, well, that's understandable. <laughs> and Alex's like, oh, yeah, uh, totally. <laughs> right. It's not just about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is a useful way to combat certain kinds of anxiety. It is. <laughs> like, this person doesn't hate me they just have their own life <laughs> <laughs> exactly and then we also saw the resurgence of alex's tendency toward perfectionism mm -hmm. sure did <laughs> she talks about not wanting to fail specifically because of how great eliza was yes so this episode did a really great job of reinforcing something that should have been clear since season one which is that alex loves her mom a whole lot mm. and she articulated something that was fairly clear subtextually last season about her motives for wanting to be a mom, which is that Eliza was the one who inspired her to think that this goal was achievable, particularly mm -hmm. as a single mom. Yeah. So that was lovely and definitely setting us up for the fact that we're going to see the Danvers family soon. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is exciting. We're not saying we would like to see Eliza more often, but we definitely are saying that. <laughs> yes. But going back to Alex's constant anxiety, her examples of Eliza's parenting and like how she's like, oh, I could never, <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to do this. They're just like regular, you know, moms being there for their children type situations. Like, Yeah, they're like normal things you do as a parent. Yeah. She hugged me when I cried. She fixed my bumps and bruises and worked on my science projects with me, which is not obviously something that everyone experiences. But in terms of like being stressed about being a parent, they are achievable things. <laughs> they are. But that was also such a normal anxiety about not being able to be a good parent. Mm. But the examples that she talked about are also kind of similar to what George talked about with his mother at her funeral. Yeah, which was nice because we saw through the way that this episode was edited together that you were supposed to catch on that the story about the Lockwood family is supposed to go with 
the story about Alex having anxiety about being a parent and thinking about her own mom mm-hmm. and Kara also. And we also saw that Alex A will absolutely be fine because that's just the kind of person Alex is. Like Alex also thought she wasn't a good sister and look at her now. <laughs> um, yeah. But also that Alex will be great as long as she remembers to lean on her network of people who love and support her to talk her down when she's in those <laughs> moments. Yeah. And it's funny that she was specifically so stressed about not having Kara in this episode because it tends to be Jean who she goes to for like adulting concerns. Hmm. And she hasn't mentioned him at all, really. And they haven't had that many scenes together. So that was kind of odd. Well, he was off planet. <laughs> he was. But Kelly says, you care too much to fail, which was perfect. <laughs> yeah, that is a summary of Alex Danvers in one sentence. Mm-hmm. That is her approach to everything. <laughs> <laughs> like on the scale of Ben Lockwood to Alex Danvers and like who would be there for a family member and care enough about them as opposed to like other things. Alex is definitely up there and yes. very passionate <laughs> about her core family group and would never do anything like what Lockwood did. But this kind of takes us back to the idea that we discussed in the Mothers and Daughters podcast mm. and the various mothers and their parenting styles and like what they care about as parents. Yeah. We talked about this concept of good enough parenting, which is like an actual psychological term in terms of like no parent is perfect and like you're gonna mess up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I say from experience, yeah. <laughs> and you're not gonna be able to fix everything and you're gonna say some things that hurt your kids sometimes, but if you care enough and like you put in enough effort and love, then hopefully it will be good enough so that they will end up relatively emotionally healthy. Yeah. And so Alex in she does attempt, at least initially, to deal with this anxiety and this stress that she's feeling. Or well, maybe she doesn't attempt to deal with it so much as she throws up a roadblock as to why she's not dealing with it. <laughs> because she immediately in the midst of her first kind of panic riddled word vomit <laughs> is like, I want to talk to Kara, but Kara's not here and I can't talk to Kara. So like my life is over. What do I do? <laughs> like, you know. And Kelly very nicely in a way that was very similar to what Nia did to get Brady to recognize what was in kind of his own heart as far as what he wanted to do in a previous episode. Kelly just asks Alex, well, what would Kara say to you? Because she understands how well Kara and Alex know each other, hmm. which was subtly reinforced in this episode. <laughs> hmm. mm-hmm. But, you know, Kelly poses this question to Alex and Alex is like, okay, thinks about it for half a second. <laughs> and it's like, this is all the things that she would say and I am okay with them. <laughs> Except for the part where Kara would definitely not use the word sacrilege at all. That was definitely Alex putting words in her mouth there. <laughs> yeah. We talked about how it was like the same kind of enthusiasm that Kara would use. Yeah. But the word sacrilege. Going back to words that were used like not quite right in this episode. <laughs> The, the sort of religious connotation isn't really consistent with what Kara would say. And it's also not consistent with the Danvers family at all, given that Alex has been like, LOL, I am not religious. <laughs> but it is interesting in terms of Alex not having a full picture of Kara in her mind right now because she doesn't know anything about Kara's religion. True. Her Kryptonian religion. So that might just be like a fill in the blank situation. Um. <laughs> it might be, but it stuck out to me as a word choice just because there was an unusually high amount of background references to Christianity in this episode, and there usually are not. So yeah. that in combination with the thing about the priest and then the Lockwoods having multiple scenes like in the church with the religious paraphernalia kind of in the background mm. was a little unusual for this show. 
Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Not necessarily in a bad way, but just in a like, huh, this is different. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. But going back to Alex trying to figure out what Cora would say and being stressed that Cora isn't there for her, tying back into that theme that we've discussed, this has given room for Alex to sort of cope on her own, which is something that we've discussed as a possible place for the Danvers sisters to go before in the podcast because of this sort of forced separation occasionally. But it also gave Kelly the room to be there for Alex and for Alex to rely upon a different person and then Kelly to then tell her to rely upon her own brain. (laughs) (laughs) A thing Alex sometimes needs to hear. Yes. But the advice that Kelly ends up actually saying to Alex is, you will get a second chance at everything. Don't lose hope. And this is after Alex realizes that she's not going to be able to adopt that baby, which is sort of reminiscent of what Kara told Alex last season when she said you were hopeful when you made the decision that you could have more and you know what I think you're right I think there's another person out there for you and I think you will be a mom you will have all of the things (laughs) which might actually be sort of subconsciously why Alex wanted Kara to be there as opposed to someone like Sean for Kara to be able to give that sort of hopeful point of view. It's true since we have pointed out that Jean admires Alex's serious consideration of all things (laughs) Yes, he might not lift her spirits in quite the same way. But he's also been a parent, so... (laughs) There's also that. Alex didn't ask any of her parental figures in this episode for advice, maybe because she was intimidated because they're so good. That's true. And that was a very good point that you made in saying, like, Alex is someone who is so anxious, would be almost afraid to admit that she doesn't know what to do Mm. to... Eliza, especially, but also perhaps Sean. But it was a little odd that Kelly, haha, I called mom because you were in the hospital, who doesn't know that about Alex, didn't suggest it. Mm. Like that felt slightly off. After she was talking about how great her mom is. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, okay, you clearly get along really well with your mom. Why didn't you call her? <laughs> but part of the reason for this is obviously to give. Alex and Kelly a little bit more space to hang out apart from James, apart from Kara, and have a relationship that is just about them and not like Alex picking up all of Kara's friends just because she does. (laughs) (laughs) But that was only part of the reason that this storyline existed in the episode. And I don't even think it was necessarily the most important part of why this storyline was in the episode. Yeah. So this plot line between Alex and Kelly was also a very sneaky story about Alex's role within the Danvers family, which is important. And I expect we're going to understand in more depth exactly how and why next week. Mm -hmm. But specifically, one of the things that Kelly points out that she has recognized even only knowing Alex for a fairly short time is that she's an extremely nurturing person, which is true. It's always been true Mm -hmm. since the first season. We always see her there for her loved ones, specifically her family, and often at her own expense, which has been true in flashbacks and in multiple situations going forward since the first season, and specifically with the mind wipe. Mm. And so the way that this plotline with Alex is structured is one of the very first things that she says in that scene where she's out jogging with Kelly is, ha, it must be weird to have a sibling with superpowers, like definitely reminding us that that's a lot large part of Alex's story and it has changed her role Mm. within her family. We've had like little hints of Alex saying lines that are like sort of dramatically ironic for us, but this was like so blatant that it's clear that they're teeing us up for these last two episodes. 
Yeah, and especially in combination with her talk about Kara and needing Kara to be there and knowing Kara well enough to know what she would say. And mm-hmm. also talking about Eliza and dropping Eliza's name because they usually do that a couple episodes before she reappears. <laughs> so Foreshadowing of the best kind. Guess what, guys? The good stuff's coming. <laughs> yes. But going back to that comment about Alex being nurturing that Kelly makes, she says, you take care of your friends, your sister, you took care of my brother when he was in the hospital, and even me, who you barely knew, which seems to be sort of like a motivation for why Kelly would be so interested in being Alex's support and like kind of going above and beyond to be there with her during this process. Yeah, true, since Alex was the one who advocated for letting Lena help, and that's the reason James is still alive. Mm -hmm. And then also in the last episode, she was her like biggest supporter in terms of like, no, Mm. Kelly doesn't have to go in there. It's traumatizing for her as well. So then in terms of like Kelly's side of this interaction and like her motivations and her character we see that kelly is again a master metaphor maker she said that wounds heal and then alex is like into scars <laughs> because alex is miss optimist <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then kelly says that fade in time so clearly she's skilled at this metaphor business which is funny because maybe she really didn't like brainy's metaphor <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> if the audience doesn't remember, Kelly also made that metaphor about the jello and how you can shake it and it'll keep its form. But if you stab into it with a spoon, it's a little bit harder to put it back together again. But in this episode, going along with that scar metaphor, Kelly says like you can wear it as a badge of honor of what you learn from the experience, which is fitting in terms of Alex and Maggie and their relationship because they really emphasized at the end of that relationship that Alex learned something and Maggie learned something. And that despite the fact that they're not together forever, they were made better from the experience. And Alex specifically, it sort of forced her to take the first step of like prioritizing her own wants in her life and recognizing what she should actually go after and has taken us to where we are now with her character. So Indeed. And then again, going back to Kelly and her characterization. Kelly's story about her fiance who died and how she wasn't able to tell anybody about how she felt because she wasn't allowed to be out in the military at the time tied back into the theme of like having people be there for you. Well, she didn't actually say she couldn't be out in the military. She specifically said while serving abroad, Mm. which could just be a reference to the fact that she was in the Middle East. But I do hope we get a little more context on how old she is because it's slightly unclear if it is just a reference to her being abroad in a place that's hostile to members of the LGBT community, or if we're meant to assume that she was serving before Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, which was in, I think, 2010. So maybe. Maybe one day. (laughs) Speaking of going abroad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Lena and Kara both went on a trip to Kaznia. Or as they say in the American accent, Kaznia. Yes. (laughs) So they have their Mary-Kate and Ashley movie (laughs) adventure. And speaking of movies, you had an interesting observation about how Lena and Cara behaved on their trip there. Oh my god, it was like two stereotypical like white girls who are going to die in a horror movie. (laughs) There was a scary noise and they're like, is someone there? And then they both walk toward the noise. Like Cara, of course, would do that because Cara thinks nothing can hurt her. But like Lena, there was no excuse. I don't care if you have an electric cattle prod. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, they are also like on a quest for the truth. They're both Gryffindors, just accept it. <laughs> <laughs> So they're on this quest to figure out what Lex Luthor is doing, and they come across Eve, or a 
copy of Eve. Or multiple copies of Eve. <laughs> Quite a few. Tying into the title of this episode, Will the Real Miss Tessmacher Please Stand Up, which is a reference to an Eminem song. For those of you who are 90s children like me, you will remember that chorus and not how horrible and misogynistic the rest <laughs> of the lyrics were. <laughs> Quite. But that's called Will the Real Slim Shady Please Stand Up. And that song itself references a talk show called To Tell the Truth, which is fitting in which there are three contestants and you must identify the person who actually has the unusual occupation or experience that the host reads out. So seeking the true Eve Tessmacher. And we saw Eve in this episode maybe seem like she cares about Lena and Cora, or maybe not. <laughs> maybe. There were so many duplicates of her. It was a little hard to tell which ones were being slightly more authentic. Yeah. But she does at one point say that she loves both Cara and Lena, but she just loves Lex more. Yep. Which goes back to our theme again of being there for select people and then the concept of choosing sides and whose side you're on. Indeed. But in a contrast to that, Eve did maybe seem like she was sincere in the affection that she has for Lena and Kara because she did seem somewhat upset when she thought she had stabbed Lena. Mm -hmm. I know Andrea Brooks has said that she does think that Eve actually does care about Lena at least. So so then that's good that we noticed that. <laughs> it's supposed to be there. <laughs> yes. All right. So maybe we'll see a little bit more of people with their loyalties being pulled in more than one direction mm. as we get into the last couple of episodes. Indeed. <laughs> so going back to our... <laughs> the adventure. <laughs> Mary-Kate and Ashley. Cara and Lena are looking for Lex and they find this room where aliens were kept and expected experimented on and tortured. And Kara, you know, being an alien, has some opinions about this. She late in the episode says to James, if I landed anywhere else, that could have been me, a refugee raised as a weapon. But it could have happened to her in the United States as well. Yeah, as the Red K episode has already evidenced. <laughs> a storyline that we dealt with in season two was Cadmus, a government sanctioned project to take aliens and experiment on them and at one point take Alex. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that would have worked out. <laughs> yeah. And then even back in season one, we had Hank Henshaw come to the Danvers house on behalf of the DEO and he wanted to take Kara away. He said, while Superman refuses to work with our study, Kara would help immensely. And she at this point is like 13 or something. Yeah. You know, and on some level, Kara was aware of a vague threat, perhaps not like the immediate, the DEO would like to take you away. <laughs> that she'd be carted off to a lab and like hacked up for parts for medical experiments. Yeah. Yeah. But Jeremiah said to her in flashback that we saw about how Kara saved somebody, a woman and her child from a burning car. He says that excuse would work once, that the glasses will suppress your vision, help you fit in. So this concept of like people can't know that you have powers and that you're an alien, not because you want to be a superhero, but because you're different. And then even Alex in the pilot episode said, what if people figure out who you are, what you are? It's just not safe for you to do anything like that ever again. So this idea of it threatening her safety, if people know, and you know, you can make the logical steps of like, the worst case scenario that would happen if people do find out, and that is the sort of government-sanctioned experimentation, or even maybe not government-sanctioned. <laughs> Luther experimentation. <laughs> yeah. Which actually, speaking of that, and the idea of Kara, had I landed anywhere else, and the idea that, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be another country, that's been somewhat played up in the fact that it's Lex Luthor who has been filling Cosby and Kara's head with ideas. Mm, yeah. Because the Luthers are American. Imagine if Kara had ended up in a family like that yeah. instead of the Danvers. Like, there are all sorts of ways she could have gone down a path of terrible. Yeah. Specifically, just if Jeremiah hadn't been also a resource that the 
DEO wanted, they could have taken her away. So there was a specific event where she did end up landing that could have gone very differently for her. <laughs> and then one other thing with regards to the whole giant Lex conspiracy that we still haven't seen the bottom of yet is that the show has done a nice job of trying to reconnect as many season one threads as it can related to the DEO and maybe past aliens Kara has dealt with, or just the fact that the original base that they used exists. Mm -hmm. And so that was a nice little touch as far as world building. Yeah. And earlier in the season, we saw like Project Morai as an example of alien children being tortured. Yes. And actually, there was a file for the Morai in the pile of stuff that Kara and Lena looked through. Yeah. And then it sort of goes from being, oh, this could have happened to me to sort of more present threats to Kryptonians, things that could happen to her still. Like she sees the kryptonite and the RNL and she says this is all equipment to hurt Kryptonians. And it's also conveniently stuff that Lena has made herself, which takes us back to that recurring theme that we've seen across the season of like Lena and technology. Yeah. She says in this episode, humans make mistakes, my technology doesn't. And anybody who's <laughs> used technology before <laughs> knows that technology can make mistakes. Yes. And technology makes mistakes specifically because humans make technology and humans make mistakes. Yes. <laughs> And what Lena seems to not grasp, despite her degree in engineering, is that the way that we as human beings both create and interact with technology affect both our own way of understanding ourselves and the ways we perceive objects as being good or bad. Hmm. And I think it's maybe one of the reasons that she gets so entrenched in her point of view when Kara points out as Supergirl that some of the things Lena has created have done bad things. Because Lena takes that as a personal attack because her intention in making it was good and isn't addressing the social ramifications of any of the uses of her technology by other people. Mm -hmm. She assumes that she will be able to control everything that happens with the technology she makes. And Yes. And then in this episode, her airplane specifically, she's like, oh, everything's under control. And then like weird lightning hits it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is just funny because Kara earlier had said to Lena that she wanted to fly commercial as opposed to on her plane. And if you're <laughs> thinking from Lena's point of view, it's got to be like, oh, she doesn't trust this plane because it's obviously faster or whatever. Well, it's like, why would you want to fly coach in a commercial airline <laughs> to across the earth mm -hmm. when I have a private plane that can just go straight there? Yeah. <laughs> and then it ends up not working. <laughs> yes. But then the other question is, is Kara trying to avoid flying with Lena because she's in a hurry? Because she's trying to protect Lena by not bringing her there with her? Or because she's afraid of being confined in a small flying aircraft? Uh, all the above? <laughs> Probably the correct answer. <laughs> but then we see the other side of this discussion on the concept of technology with Eve's paperwork, physical paper. And Lena says that Eve always said you couldn't hack paper. Eve is not wrong. That's actually the best way to keep things you want a secret a secret. <laughs> Except, as we realize, when Kara finds her actual diary in this bunker. <laughs> yeah. But then, of course, we have Lex who sets up an automated system of lightning to send at whoever appears. And Lena says it's very Lex, which is, of course, referring to him, like, killing people without even being there. But the automated aspect is also accurate. <laughs> yes. Well, especially because we saw his automated security system last season. Yeah, that's true. And then in terms of technology and Lex, we see that these like electric baton type things that they use to shock the aliens and tying back to the idea that 
Kara as an alien isn't just at risk in the abstract sense that she could have landed somewhere else, but she's more actively at risk because Eve uses these same things that they use to shock the aliens on Supergirl and sort of following that train of thought of Kara's relation to these aliens that Lex is using. She relates to Red Daughter. She sort of assumes that there's good in her right off the bat, which is very Kara of her, which is very much in contrast with Lena, (laughs) (laughs) who says like there was good in Sam and Rain was a monster, which is, of course, interesting because when Kara made the decision to not kill Rain Mm. was when Red Daughter was created. True. But clearly Kara did not consider Rain a monster enough to think that it was okay to kill her. Well, the other thing that's interesting with Lena's phrasing there is that also Sam was human and Rain was not. Hmm. Which ties into the way she describes Cosney and Kara. And if you track the way that she referred to Rain in season three, there are definitely similarities there. But she says, Lex has created the very thing he fears the most, Kryptonian weapon trained as a killer. And in Lex's hands, it's more dangerous than an atomic bomb. And he has it pointed right at America. And Kara says, she is not an it. She sure does. And I said to myself... Lena, this is why Kara still doesn't trust you with certain kinds of things Mm. related to being an alien. Yeah. But Kara's assertion that Red Daughter is a person just like she is a person. Well, it makes a lot of sense given that Lena specifically says it's a nature versus nurture situation. She was a blank slate that Lex could shape however he wanted, which to Kara's mind immediately says, okay, that means you can undo it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's just funny because we've been drawing these comparisons between Red Daughter and Lena and like the effect that Lex has had on both of them. So Mm -hmm. it's just funny to see Lena not relate to her in the way the car might. That's a really good point too, actually. Like she looks at it immediately, partly because they're standing in front of like a board of military targets (laughs) and says, oh, a weapon. And Kara sees a person. Yeah. (sighs) And that's, you know, ties pretty deeply into like what Lena fears personally in terms of like aliens and her actions and what she thinks that she has to do and create with her technology. It's always like this person is a weapon. (laughs) But it's interesting though, as you said, that she doesn't see herself in the same way or say, oh, here is another person who was psychologically abused by my brother. Yeah. Despite the fact that Lena herself has like a lot of power. Yeah. She can do quite a lot of things that other people cannot. And if she so chooses, be quite dangerous. So, And she was manipulated in much the same way into doing things that have put other people in danger, specifically by Lex. Yeah. <laughs> but going back to Kara's point of view and, and how she's perceiving everything, she eventually comes upon the sort of like shrine of creepy pictures of Kara and the people that she loves in her life and mostly Kara and Alex and Kara and Lena because those are the people that likely Red Daughter is most interested in. In terms of needing to fool potentially or go after them. Well, and in terms of Alex being... Alex, yeah. (laughs) Alex having the name Alex and Lena being the person that Lex is closest to. So it just makes sense in terms of... Well, in a way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in terms of what Red Daughter was exposed to in her Mm. episode and like who she was most interested in in Kara's life. True. So that's why we don't see like Eliza up there. Well, also those were all promo stills from old episodes. (laughs) They sure were. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, these all look so familiar. (laughs) So this really hits home the fact that not only could it have been her, Kara, but that she could lose everything right now. 
because like it clearly reads like a threat well yeah to her and her life and her family members <laughs> that's such a huge violation of privacy like it's definitely worse even than in season one with the little spy cam yeah you know there were so many images of Kara in every facet of her life as both Supergirl and as herself in her off time. Her diary was there. Like, Cosney and Kara just took it. <laughs> so then Kara's being confronted with the evidence that not only was somebody taking pictures, which, like, at least maybe they could have done from far away, but, like, no, someone was physically in her home and reading her innermost thoughts and learning how she thinks about the people that she cares about and how she thinks. Mm. And she doesn't know why or what they're going to do with it yeah. other than destroy her life somehow. Mm -hmm. And this ties back into, you know, we were talking about how Kara was aware of a vague threat to herself growing up. Mm. Like if people found out that she was an alien, but she was also cognizant of the possibility that she could lose her family. Like Jean, who was masquerading as a woman from the FBI who looks just like Kara's mom. Like he said to her in the Midvale flashback, you've already lost so much, but you could lose more if you're not careful. You have a second chance here, but you have to be normal. You have to be human. So sort of emphasizing the fact that she has to fit in in order to keep herself from losing the family that she has found after she already lost one family before. Yeah, and knowing that we're going to get more resolution on the mind wipe in the next episode, her realizing that even that hasn't been enough is also terrifying because like, look how horrible and traumatic that was. Mm -hmm. So that was possibly the only scene in the episode that didn't have dialogue and it was honestly one of the strongest scenes in the episode yeah. because the, the look on Kara's face of just total violation and horror and fear. Mm. Speaking of, you know, post-Mindwipe Alex thinking Kara isn't vulnerable. <laughs> she is extremely vulnerable in this moment and it was really well done the way that was set up. Yeah. And then she hears Lena and she's thinking about how her identity and her secret of being an alien has unraveled and she hears Lena coming and you can see that she is pretty freaked out. Speaking of the Danvers sisters and panicking. <laughs> yeah, she is visibly upset as she tries to prevent Lena from seeing. And then she eventually even goes back, turns around while the place is like about to explode anyway <laughs> to then burn all the pictures that were there. Right? Like it's unnecessary, but she really wanted to be yeah. sure that stuff would not survive. It it was a very clearly like emotional decision that she made, which was really interesting. It was, in contrast to some of the very emotional decisions that other people made in this episode, specifically Lockwood. Mm. And also Lena in her decision to chase down Eve. Yeah. But so then, you know, after the place does explode and Kara and Lena are back on the plane, Lena ends up giving sort of a monologue about how affected she was by Eve's betrayal and how, you know, it ties into everything and her trust issues. And she says, I don't know if I'll ever recover from it. Yeah. And the way that was set up was curious because the very next scene has Alex saying, I don't know if I can survive that regarding her own emotional wounds and going through something really difficult mm -hmm. once and not wanting to have to do it again. Yeah. So there have been, again, in this episode, there were a number of similarities between Kara and Alex's dynamic and Kara and Lena's dynamic. So in addition to just that, you also had Kara going and saving the plane <laughs> that was crashing. Only this time, she's much more confident <laughs> that she can do it. I got this, she said. <laughs> yes. And then you also have the scene at the end in the plane where Lena's apologizing tonally felt very similar to the conversation that Alex has with Kara at the end of Menagerie 412, where in both cases, both Lena and Alex kind of acknowledge that they aren't accepting that Kara's okay 
okay mm. and that they have their own different reasons for not necessarily trusting people in different kinds of ways. Like Lena just doesn't trust people wholesale, <laughs> whereas Alex's was more specific and was like, I need to trust that people can take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. It was funny though in this episode, Lena being like really stressed about Kara's safety. She yelled back at her to get her oxygen mask on. <laughs> yes, which was funny, but it was also intentionally there to explain why Kara's cover of pretending that she passed out worked because you see the mask hanging above her like she didn't put it on when the pressure dropped mm. in the cabin, which does cause people to faint. Yes, which is just, again, funny because Kara appeared to be stressed out about getting on her plane earlier in the episode and kind of ties into Lena's like feelings of guilt surrounding feeling like she has to protect Kara. And she talks about how she saw red and she was chasing after Eve and she wasn't there for her tying into that theme. And then she was also seeing Red earlier in relation to Eve when Kara was trying to like appeal to oh, yeah. Eve's <laughs> want to be loved by Lex. Kara kind of gave her this side eye. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I'm working, working Eve. That again was also similar to Alex, like when they were interrogating Purity last season. Ha! That is good. But so we see Kara use her sort of reporter people skills in contrast with Lena's more emotional reaction. But then back to that concept of Lena being there for Kara. Kara says, well, no matter what, we're always on the same side, which is interesting in terms of Lena, because just in this past podcast episode, you were talking about how Lena may be forced to choose sides mm -hmm. and how she initially was reluctant to do so. But Lena's feelings of guilt here were essentially what caused Kara to decide to tell Lena that she is Supergirl. Like all facets of that choice sort of surrounded how Lena was feeling and what Kara thought was best for Lena. Like, Lena says that she feels guilty for putting Kara in danger, so Kara immediately decides, like, enough is enough, I'm going to tell her, because the reason that she said that she wasn't telling her before was for Lena's protection, but it seemed like Kara weighed the harm with the good that it was doing for Lena in her life and decided that it was best for Lena if she said it, while Lena was giving the speech of, trust is still a learned skill for me, it doesn't come naturally. And so Lena gets through most of her speech <laughs> about this, but it isn't until after she says, I know there's no way I could ever trust anyone ever again if it wasn't for your friendship and your integrity. That car is like, uh, <laughs> better not. Because she does go through this whole like, I would feel really betrayed <laughs> if this ever yeah. happened again. But it's not until that moment where Lena frames it as this would be harmful for me personally mm. if someone betrayed me like that, that Kara decides not to go through with it. Well, and especially with Lena being in an emotionally vulnerable place at the moment, it's actually almost kind of like Lockwood being faced with the choice of like supporting his son or chasing down an alien. But that scene where Kara is standing in the background and takes her glasses off and like changes her posture, puts her hands on her hips, is a nod to the first Superman film, the Donner films with Christopher Reeve, in which Clark is being Clark Kent and then Lois walks into the next room. He takes his glasses off and it's like one shot. It doesn't change. He takes his glasses off, changes his posture and changes his voice because he does sort of a nasally thing as Clark Kent. And you see the shift from Clark Kent into Superman. And we kind of see that here with Cara Danvers and Supergirl and body language. So that was nice. There was also another nod to the Superman film with Kara's skewed glasses after she like pretended to pass out. She said, I must have passed out. And when Clark is Clark Kent and gets shot, but like catches it, he falls over and then says, golly, I guess I must have fainted to Lois. So 
<laughs> it's just fitting because Kara's sort of like facade of being scared as Kara Danvers to Lena is kind of more in line with what we see with Superman and his Clark Kent in the movies than we usually see with Kara. But we have also seen her like feign cowardice. A few times this season. Yeah. Well, with Kat too, early in season one. Oh, but also in the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was more like secret identity fun in this episode. So there were a lot of fun moments playing upon that. But then there were also those elements of like drama. And I loved both of those things. You sure did. I see your evil smiley face in the <laughs> notes over here. Yes. But Kara does decide not to tell Lena. She says later on to James, I couldn't bear to put her through that again. And this goes back to this idea of like being there for someone. Kara says to Lena, I'm always going to be here for you. But there's like a question of like, is this really the right choice? Is this choice to do the best thing for her going to result in something worse later on? And it's interesting because in the scene with Kara and James, Kara says that it's the right thing to do to tell Lena eventually when she thinks it'll be easier for her to handle emotionally after the drama of the situation is over. And it is right in terms of like maybe what's right for Lena's emotional well-being and maybe even for Kara in terms of being less stressed about it. But there's like a distinction there between those things being right and it being like the right thing to do morally because Kara has the right to have this aspect of her life be private if she so wishes. Yes, definitely true. (laughs) And then also in that scene with James, Kara discusses what she discovered while she was in Cosnia, which is interesting because later on, President Baker asks her if anyone else has seen this evidence, but she says no, that it was more important to warn him as soon as possible. But possibly James has. Yeah, which also then gives me hope that Kara has learned a trick or two (laughs) about journalism, because... One thing that some journalists will do, at least in the digital age, is set up like an email account, for example, with what's called a dead man switch, (laughs) which is named for exactly the reasons you think it is. (laughs) But basically, several major digital platforms have this ability now for you to designate contacts who can access your information if you don't log into your account after a set amount of time. And so what journalists will do is use that as leverage in case they get in trouble or they get kidnapped or taken hostage for pursuing a story. They'll usually keep all of their research and the information that they have saved in an account like this and put a time limit on it. And then if they're not back to access the account before that much time has passed, all of the information will be sent out to every single person that they've listed. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of ensuring that your story still lives on, even if something happens to you. Hopefully, we will see that with Kara, but also it's Kara. So chances are she won't be kidnapped for all that long. Mm. True. It's also possible that James just also has a copy, has a copy and would pursue it <laughs> if Cora suddenly went missing. So there's that. But we will have to see because we know there's some more reporting adventures to have by the end of the season. Yeah. And the other thing I was really excited about with the way they did this bit at the end of Kara and President Baker was Kara going there and acknowledging that there is a potentially politically explosive story that she wants to pursue is actually the correct protocol that journalists follow when they are investigating these types of things. That's why it was such a big deal with regard to things like WikiLeaks when they didn't. And that's why it was panned almost universally as not being a legitimate source of news Mm. because it actually posted tons of information that it hadn't investigated, hadn't contextualized, hadn't authenticated, and put hundreds, if not thousands, of lives 
of people in danger in the process by revealing potentially classified information about who they were and maybe what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So to see the detail there for that was really nice in that moment of Kara explaining what she had and wanting to share it. She just unfortunately didn't realize that the president was corrupt. No, poor (laughs) Kara. Sometimes her optimism and her sense of confidence give her blind spots. Mm -hmm. She says a couple of times throughout the episode, like, oh, I hope we didn't ruin the element of surprise, even though at least we as the audience have caught on to the fact that Lex is definitely still pulling the strings on like every single thing they've discovered and was expecting them to be there even before the plane got hit. And then Kara finds these files and she's like, well, now we know everything. (laughs) Yeah, you sure? (laughs) Plot twist. (laughs) Yes. And in terms of things with Lex pulling the strings, like you mentioned earlier that your sister questioned whether or not Alex getting pulled away from the DEO was part of the bigger distraction plan. We also see the very first chart that Lena looks at when they get to Cosnia is for an adult female Bravik, which is the exact profile of the person who killed Lockwood's wife. Mm. And we know that Lex has been pulling his strings Mm -hmm. and that Ben Lockwood doesn't like the idea that somebody might have been manipulating him. So I wonder if that wasn't also planned as well on some level. A good question. And then we're also curious to see if this is part of a much larger plan because Brady mentions partway through the episode that Colonel Haley went to D.C. like two episodes ago now Hmm. to try to persuade the president or his staff to revoke Lockwood's security clearance. And we haven't seen her since then. And since the episode ends with Kara revealing that she's aware of the scheme and then getting a bag thrown over her head, I wonder (laughs) if we'll find out that the reason Haley's been gone from the DEO is that she is also somewhere in a bunker under the White House. Mm -hmm. Which, when you first said this, I said that it would be interesting to see Haley and Cara Danvers interact. Mm, Yeah. Because Cara Danvers is the identity that Cara has been trying to keep from Haley this whole time. Also be just interesting in terms of maybe she is forced by plot to reveal to Haley that she is an alien and Haley ends up being on her side or something like that. So we'll have to see where that goes. That would be really interesting too. Yeah. (laughs) And then to tie in all these mysteries together, we of course have that revelation that Baker, along with his chief of staff, seems to be colluding, keyword there, with the (laughs) Cosnians slash Lex, perhaps. Or Baker is at least willing, in the way that some other presidents are willing, (laughs) to let things go, despite the moral questionable nature of it. So he could either be actively participating in this collusion or covering it up and therefore, you know, colluding. (laughs) Indeed, which is not at all a parallel to real life. No. That's not like anything. (laughs) But Baker specifically as well ties into this concept of like being there for people and where your loyalties lie, what side you're on. He, in a way similar to Lockwood, chooses his own personal goals over something else that he should value. For Lockwood, it is his family, his son, and his son's emotional well-being. And for Baker, it is, you know, the country. (laughs) All of the citizens he's supposed to be protecting. Yeah. Baker most values his own personal success as a president. So that's that. (laughs) Yeah. Which is also interesting because we saw when Kara was starting to figure out what was going on back in All About Eve, 
she recognizes that Eve was physically in the White House using an image inducer to impersonate someone, and we were never clear on who it was, but we did also find out in this episode that the female chief of staff was signing orders to take prisoners out of the DEO fully legally, so maybe that was secretly her. Mm -hmm. But I do also wonder if, at this point, if Baker is still Baker. (laughs) I lean toward yes. I would find it more interesting if it is yes, but I could also see it not being him any longer. I think Mm -hmm. he was himself for most of the time, but I wonder. He didn't read like not Baker either in his delivery. I don't know. Mm. But I can picture like later on Lex using an image inducer to be Baker or something like that to be president. (laughs) Although I wonder if image inducers can replicate the faces of famous people because that seems like a thing Lena might have considered. Yeah, but Lex being Lex could probably... Take the technology and... <laughs> also true. This is what happens when you release things into the world. A valid point. And then to wrap up our comments, there were a few kind of miscellaneous things about this episode that we enjoyed and we want to point them out. <laughs> One of those was just kind of a casual background observation of the DEO. Almost everyone who's at the command center in those scenes where Lockwood is ranting is female. And a lot of them are also women of color, which was really cool to see and is a shift away from how the DEO was staffed in the past. So that was like a very subtle nod to the change in leadership that Alex has made, which was cool. And then some more miscellaneous things that were nice. In terms of character dynamics, we saw Nia and James interact some more, Mm. which was great. And I'd like to see more of those two. (laughs) We've seen Nia be quite fond of puns, especially last week when she had all the sleeping and dream related puns. This time she says hammer time as she is wielding the solar hammer in the direction of James coming after him. Right. That was hilarious. And it was also really sweet in that it gave us a glimpse of maybe what James James is like as a sibling. Mm, yeah, I like that. It did feel sort of big brother, little sistery. Yeah, his panicked, not my face. <laughs> Um, yes. And now it's time for Cycle's least favorite section of our <laughs> notes, which is our quibbles with the storytelling. There were some things that I think are worth pointing out just as far as world building or internal logic within the episode. This one had a fairly inexperienced writer at the helm and it showed a bit because there was a lot more exposition than usual. It was actually kind of hard to find scenes that didn't have a lot of talking. <laughs> and it's a big transition from writing for print to writing for a visual storytelling medium, Mm -hmm. which is why you have some of that excess narration, which is okay, because you can learn from that. But there were also some kind of logistical issues that were a bit unfortunate Mm -hmm. because they ignored some things that are fairly common knowledge in a way that was distracting for the audience. So like our first example is when Kara and Lena are in the plane and it gets hit by the lightning and Lena goes to try to land the plane in the cockpit. Meanwhile, Kara's like, I'm going to fix this myself, (laughs) and somehow both leaves and re-enters the plane without (laughs) depressurizing it or setting off any alerts that the doors have been opened, which... Lena's technology is just that good. (laughs) (laughs) Right? But like most people know how planes work. They know it's an issue. Um, But that seemed like an overly easy way of addressing the situation. Mm -hmm. It would have been a lot more entertaining to see Kara trying to like subtly steer the plane from inside (laughs) of it while trying to look really casual 
table in case Lena looked back. I think that's just a matter of they didn't think of that because <laughs> they definitely wanted to set up a situation where Lena's technology fails and then Kara ends up having to step in and help her and also have that. <laughs> but Lena still thinks she did it all herself. Yeah. <laughs> and then also have that comedic element, which is great. But yeah. I mean, it's such a great mental image to picture Kara like mm-hmm. leaning against an overhead luggage rack in an attempt to level the plane and realizing that Lena can see her and being like, oh, I'm fine. I'm just clinging for dear life. <laughs> yeah. I just flew up here because <laughs> <laughs> I flew right out of my seat. The seatbelt just couldn't hold me. Lady, your plane is terrible. <laughs> the seatbelts don't work. <laughs> yeah. I think that's just some, yeah. If they had thought of that, I'm sure they would have opted for that. Yeah. But the not accounting for the depressurizing seems like something obvious mm. that was overlooked because that's a warning you get every time you fly a plane. I do wonder if they thought of it and then could think of a way to get around it. <laughs> Fair. But who knows? And then another Lena-related questionable story element is when Lena takes off the heel of her shoe to (laughs) turn it into a weapon, and then it's still a heel shoe. (laughs) It just doesn't have the heel on it. It's not like a flat like surface where she can just stand on it naturally it's still shaped in a very heelish way and then (laughs) right and then she's immediately standing level on both feet somehow like she doesn't even stumble which her shoe has no heel and anyone who's ever (laughs) broken a heel can tell you that that is not normal she's just on her tippy toes the whole time as she's fighting (laughs) (laughs) hopping on one toe and her other foot's fine it's like it's bad enough to be fighting with heels (laughs) And then you're you're expected (laughs) to fight with one. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, Uh, that would have been really funny if she was just hopping around like Monty Python or something. (laughs) Yeah, it would have been. Well, and the other trouble with that gag, which was a script supervision issue, is that there are multiple moments in other scenes where you see Lena's full body and her shoes, and she's very clearly wearing stilettos. But then when she goes to pull this weapon out of the heel of her shoe, it's suddenly thick enough to hold in your hand, but Mm -hmm. only in that one scene. (laughs) So like, that was a little bit sloppy. This is another situation where it's like, I guess Lena's technology is just so good. (laughs) It's magic. (laughs) Although uh, her technology can't help her with logic. (laughs) Oh, man, logic. So in the Cosmian lab, we have Kara refreshing the audience's memory about Copy, who we saw back in episode four of the season and explaining how copies powers work and she says that every time there's an extra copy they get dumber the longer they're separated from each other now not even 20 seconds after akara tells us this eve appears out of nowhere looking like a creepy possessed doll and then the eve duplicate glitches barely two minutes later Mm -hmm. and i get the idea that maybe you assume the audience isn't paying close attention or whatever but Hmm. we can remember things for two minutes so that was like a little bit pushing it (laughs) you know what would have helped actually would be to have listed other aliens and how they worked or other experiments that lex had done that maybe affect the alien people's minds to like add a mix of different things it could be therefore that are not like oh this is obviously not eve standing in front of me yeah And they tried to make it convincing because Lena starts hypothesizing, like, is it a clone? No, wait, the Harnell doesn't work on humans. 
But as an audience member, you're sitting there going, Kara literally just told you what it is Mm -hmm. because it was the only alien whose powers they talked about. But then we have to wait 15 more minutes for this reveal, which then feels annoying because it's not a surprise. So structurally, this has the unfortunate side effect of taking characters who are intelligent Mm -hmm. and making them look not very smart for the sake of of plot contrivance, which, as you said, could have been relatively easily fixed. There's also the aspect that is like, we as the audience know that the things that are on the screen are there for a reason. (laughs) The information that we're getting, all the exposition has a purpose. So like, obviously, we find out this information. And then when the person appears 20 seconds later and is being weird, and the episode is called Will the Real (laughs) Miss Tessmacher Please Stand Up? It's a copy, like they mentioned. But whereas a regular person may not make the leap, but then that still stretches believability because even though like if you're living your life and you read information, you don't expect it to be relevant to the next thing that happens. You still just read that information. (laughs) It's still in your brain. (laughs) Yeah, there was that. And then there's another issue that's like a little bit specific, but in this episode, it kind of reached the point of being character relevant to a level where I think it's worth pointing out. So this was both a storytelling issue and also a prop thing. For example, we had George kind of just appearing in a classified area of the DEO, which I was like, is this the Trump administration? And they're just handing out security clearances like candy? What's going on? Because he really shouldn't have I been mean, there. probably. <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. But two things with that from a prop standpoint. Anyone who's entering a facility like that, whether they're a visitor or an employee, should have an ID badge. And they were a lot better about this with the DEO in season one. Mm -hmm. But the bigger instance of this is with Kara specifically, when she goes to the White House at the end of the episode. This was the one where I wish there had been a little bit more consideration of the logistics of it, because access to the West Wing is really hard to come by, and you can't just show up unannounced if you don't work there. Like, yes, she's press. But There are a limited number of ways you get through the door to the White House. And funnily enough, the Trump administration just restricted the press access even tighter in like the last four days since this episode aired. (laughs) So there's that. But in order for Kara to walk in like that, one of the ways would be she'd have to be a member of the White House press corps. And that requires a background check with a level of scrutiny that she would not be able to withstand as an illegal immigrant. But it would provide an interesting place to kind of explore this issue of the identity and hiding she's been dealing with all season. Mm -hmm. Because if she had a legal document, like a birth certificate or whatever, then it's forged. And the consideration for that detail wasn't there, which was just a missed opportunity. But then... Another way you can get into the White House, which is presumably what Kara did in this episode, is to come in as the guest of a journalist who's already approved. And I would assume Catco has people there who can get Kara in like that. But there's also a background check process for guests. You don't just like stroll in that day. Mm-hmm. And again, that would involve people potentially digging into who Kara is. And so it would have been nice to have seen a little more thought put into that. I understand like we're using Kara because she's our point of view character for the journalism storyline, but we should still see some broader consideration for the world in which Kara is working. Like Hmm. the extra touch of showing her network of colleagues would be really nice. (laughs) There's that one alien. (laughs) 
This is true. There is our friend, Franklin the Alien, who also obviously would not be a member of the White House press corps staff for CatCo. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things where like a consultant who knows a lot about how DC works, how politics work in general, would be useful to send the script over to to sort of fact check. <laughs> yeah, because like on a set building level, they've done a really good job of making those locations look authentic. So yeah. it feels like I'm nitpicking, but that's also because the overall quality this season has been so significantly better. <laughs> like mm-hmm. they've clearly been making a strong effort to put together a more cohesive story and build the world and connect it to things that resonate with reality. And it would raise them up another level to just add those extra details that would be second nature to the characters as people in those professions. Mm-hmm. This episode was interesting in terms of tracking like a new writer for Supergirl, but also in terms of directing and like stuff that may have been present in the script, but that did not translate. Because this week it was a little bit more difficult to tie in the theme of the episode than it usually is mm-hmm. and to connect the various storylines together around the theme. But the elements may have been there, just not as emphasized as they could have been. Because at the end of one scene, Car and Lena were looking at the paperwork that Eve had in Cosnia, and then we transitioned over to Alex, who was looking at the paperwork for the adoption that she was pursuing. So there's that element that can tie these two scenes together, but it really wasn't emphasized very much in terms of direction and editing and and what we see on the screen. Because Supergirl, the show is often interesting in how they do that. You'll see a visual element and then track it into the next scene. Yeah, there were some transitions in this one that were Mm. very jarring or just cutaways and not really transitions at all. But I really liked your point, though, about the connection of both Kara and Alex holding the paperwork, because this episode was about them without them being in the same place. Mm -hmm. And the emotional issues they were dealing with were very them (laughs) and connected through this sifting through the paperwork, Mm. because you had Alex looking through this series of documents that's about to alter her life personally. And then you have Kara looking at these other files like, the whole world's going to explode if I don't do something, which is (laughs) Very much how they each approach the world. Yes. We talk a lot about how Alex is very much focused on her loved ones and her circle of people that she cares about and then also cares about the world. But her sort of initial focus is definitely leaning on that aspect of her life. And then Kara, perhaps at the expense of Mm. personal relationships, will in fact focus on the outward issues in the world, which was a problem in the last episode with her focusing on solving this problem and then kind of having that issue with Lena. (laughs) Yeah. So it was interesting to see them deal with sort of similar problems, but separately in this episode to tee us up for these last two episodes in which we will very likely focus on the mind wipe situation and deal with the Danvers family some more. So that's exciting. Yes, since the teenage actresses from the flashbacks are listed on IMDb for next week. So... Hmm. Maybe she begins to have memories or something. Yeah, maybe. So the episode description for Red Dawn mentions that Alex starts realizing that there are things missing in her memory, which she did think initially after the mind wipe. And then Jean lied to her and told her she was fine. (laughs) Speaking of people lying to each other for reasons. So I expect we'll see some fallout from that, especially depending on how long Kara goes missing at the White House. Mm -hmm. Which 
That is a storyline that you and I and some people in the SBF network Discord server were wondering if it would happen. Oh, regarding Kara's journalism and her very pro-alien stance? Yes, and Kara Danvers, the reporter, being in danger because of something she does with journalism. So we saw that sort of come to fruition in this here. Yeah, and I want to see how Kara feels emotionally about being kidnapped this time. Because when she intentionally got herself kidnapped by the Children of Liberty, she was fine because she knew she could get herself out of it. But this was unexpected, and there's kryptonite involved, mm. so it should be exciting. And then we know Lillian Luther will for sure be back, and mm-hmm. we're also fairly sure we'll see Eliza again. And it's actually quite fitting that we'll be seeing these ladies next week, because that episode airs on Mother's Day in the United States. Yeah. A perfect place to air one of the last episodes of Supergirl, the show specifically. <laughs> But if you have any theories or comments that you would like to discuss with us, you can contact us at Supergirl's Attic on Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram. Thanks for listening.